Warning, the podcast Under the Stairs is not safe for work. We'll feature movie spoilers and language which most listeners may find offensive. Brought to you in conjunction with Legion Podcast Network. Welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. everyone and welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. I am your host Duncan McLeish and welcome to this show, In Reverence, episode number four. Now the In Reverence sub-series of shows within the podcast Under the Stairs takes a look at the movies that shaped my love of horror. It shines a spotlight on movies which are already classics, ones that roll off the tongue when you're chatting with your friends about the all-time greats in horror cinema, but also highlights movies that came to me either at a very young age or much later on in my life that spurred on a passion, a new understanding or a new enjoyment within certain parts of horror that I had or had not until I saw those movies. Now, we've already done three episodes. I recommend you go back and check those three. They're spanning almost a year now since I covered my first entry into In Reverence, which was Blue Velvet by David Lynch. And we have since kind of trundled along and done another two episodes. The most recent one came out back in December, I think, last year, when we looked at Session 9, which was a modern horror film. And I did say at that point we would probably cast our eyes back. Now, in casting our eyes back to older films, it's sometimes interesting to see what movies come out and don't necessarily either one reach you at a age which is impressionable at the time the movies come out or at the same time come at you much later and you discover them and realize that maybe had you seen them when that movie came out you wouldn't appreciate it as much as you do as an adult and that is uh, such a movie we're going to be talking about later on now point of fact on the Teapot's first anniversary show, way, 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 way back in the the way, way back times. Um, I've already reviewed this movie. I had the fantastic Johnny Krug on for our one year anniversary show and discussed White of the Eye, uh, the Donald Kamel movie. That's the movie we're going to discuss again today. And the reason behind it is whilst on that show, we certainly discussed the movie. Um, What we didn't necessarily discuss was the impact that the movie had on me. Uh, It's one of these movies of recent times, since I've been podcasting anyway, that I have sat down, watched, and found myself um, being in a position where I instantly wanted to talk about a movie and realising that very few people had seen said movie. And kind of feeling frustrated that all these things, all these elements, uh, all the visual ideas, the storytelling, all very much reminiscent of things I love in other subgenres 
uh, which should in theory make it a far more popular film than it is, but even to this day it's a movie that kind of flies under the radar of many horror fans' knowledge. Um, so that's kind of where this irreverence is going to sit this time. We're going to sit in a position where we're not necessarily talking about the ins and outs of the movie, but we are going to more focus on the aspects that made this movie more appealing to me and kind of where it sits in my love of genre uh, cinema because it's not near the top. I wouldn't say this is certainly a, a five-star movie by any stretch of the imagination, but the core parts of the movie are instantly fascinating, wonderful to, to levels that are quite hard to describe for me, but at the same time, so weirdly kind of obtuse, they lie at a weird angle, which kind of makes the movie sit more in that kind of artistic, arty bracket than necessarily being right out straight down the line genre fair. So yeah, so that's what we're going to discuss on this in reverence, a little movie called White of the Eye. But before we get to that, just some updates, uh, some house notes at the start of this episode. This is another two episode week in the podcast under the stairs. That's right, this is the first episode dropping on the Monday in reverence and then coming up on Thursday you will get our movie commentary for The Cottage. Myself and The Baz sat down did an audio commentary for the 2008 British horror comedy movie The Cottage. You will have the usual avenues of checking that movie out um, if you already own it then you can play our commentary over the top. It's a nice way of doing things, that way you don't have to worry about really anything other than having it in a, in a capacity that's on the screen and hitting play when we tell you to hit play. If you do not own the movie and you want to be slightly sneaky for about the first two weeks after the show is launched, I will post a video link. Now that video link will contain not only the video but the audio for the podcast as well. So you can watch the movie um, in your computer, your tablet, your I don't know, any device that you want to, um, as long as you're streaming said link, uh, download it, stream it or whatever, and you can check that out whilst at the same time uh, listening to us talk over the top of it. So that's your options, and that episode drops on Thursday. The following Monday, so a week today, we kick off a Russian Roulette retrospective on the franchise that is Final Destination. The first episode will cover the first three movies in that franchise and then the following Monday we will conclude with the final two movies. Now, my uh, guest co-hosts have already been chosen and they've already been selected the movies that are doing so in that first episode, Paul Stevenson. Uh, will be joining us. He will be doing Final Destination Part 1. Mark Ball will be doing Final Destination Part 2. And Boz will be doing Final Destination Part 3. Part 4, or The Final Destination, is being heralded by, um, or helmed, sorry, by Dan Chase. And in the final part, Jamie J. Sammons will come up and do Final Destination Part 5. And that'll appear on that second episode. So that is also coming up so yeah keep your eyes peeled tons of podcasts under the stairs content coming your way ladies and gents right now that we've got this one out of the way this lovely little start this introduction gearing you up um, the thing I love about irreverence episodes are they're never usually longer than an hour so we're gonna take our first break you're gonna hear promos for shows that I love you're gonna hear the trailer for White of the Eye and when I return I'm gonna be discussing that movie all that and more, coming right up, right after this. Hey, feeling down? Feeling low? Not enough podcasts about movies in your life? Why not try? They must be destroyed on sight! 
the new podcast cure-all, sure to get you right with the world and on a path to better living. We have exploitation, we have Italian horror, we have zombies, we have slashers, we have crime films, we have spaghetti westerns, we even have sci-fi and sex comedies. So take a dose of... They must be destroyed on sight! As needed, and let the hosts, Lee Russell, Daniel Harper, Paul Romali, and the odd guest host, Cure What Ails Ya. Warning, may cause atrophy, African consumption, black fever, bone shave, chin puff, colic, cramp colic, dropsy of the brain, elephantitis, grocer's itch, jaundice, mania, miasma, mortification, palsy, pox disease, rheumatism, scurvy, St. Anthony's fire, summer complaint, and worm fit in some people. Consult a physician before listening. Hello, this is the Doom Show. Keep on keeping on and keep on trucking, America. We don't listen to our feedback because we don't get any. (laughs) The truth hurts. I just alienated the two people that give us constant feedback. Sorry, guys. That's gotta go. (laughs) That's gotta go in there. So on the show, uh, we talk about giallo movies and slasher movies and cult movies. Sometimes we even talk about Cameron Mitchell and his movies. I am Richard. Who are you? I am Brad, the guy that's not Richard, or Jeffrey, or Simon. That's right. We have four people, and we always talk at once, except to each other. Jeffrey lives up north. Simon lives across the world. Richard lives in Penis, Alabama. Hello, This is the Doom Show is a proud member of the Legion Podcast Network. Check out the other shows on legionpodcast.com. You can check out more Hello, This is the Doom Show at hellodoomshow.podomatic.com or at doommoviethon.com. Check for our Amazon exclusive Hello, This is the Doom Show cookbook. Do you like hot dogs? (laughs) We got them. Do you like mac and cheese? We got it. Do you like cheddar? We have it. Actually, we don't. No, no cheddar. Just Colby. Colby Jack. Hello, this is the Doom Show. We never gave up on you because you never gave up on us. Wow. Ten years ago, she married the man of her dreams. I love you more now than I did then. But does she really know him? Do you, baby? Is she willing to understand? No, I do. Or forgive? I couldn't believe it. It's like it's like somebody else is doing it, and I'm watching, and I'm and I'm going crazy. This is insanity. I don't believe you. I think you're making this whole thing up. Can't run any longer. Finally, she must ask herself if the man she married is a man she knows. I'm coming for you. I love you, Tony. I love you. I saw this whole place on this TV I got in my head. I can see it all in technicolor. David Keith and Kathy Moriarty go beyond the limits of love in... White of the Eye. And welcome back. So, uh, you've just heard the trailer for this, our feature movie review of In Reverence Part 4. We are looking at a a little movie called White of the Eye. It was directed by Scotsman Donald Kamel, who was a painter. 
um, who eventually kind of moved over, transitioned, uh, like some painters have done in the past, from uh, painting on canvas to painting on the silver screen. Uh, he had a weird kind of entry into movies in that he really came to prominence uh, with his work that he did with Nicholas Roche, who anyone out there will know uh, I am a massive Nicholas Roche fan. Um, I've said it many, many times and I'll say it many, many more. Don't Look Now is up there amongst my all-time favourite horror movies of all time. I just think it's a truly phenomenal piece of cinema. And uh, Kamel kind of fits into that weird surrealist sort of art house environment that uh, Roche certainly occupies. The two of them work together on performance um, and you know that's where he really cut his chops so to speak and came to prominence. However when you actually look at um, Kamel's filmography he actually didn't really do much after that at all. Um, in total after kind of co-directing or co-working on uh, performance he did Demon Seed from 1977, um, White of the Eye from 1987 uh, and The Argument, um, which was released much further before, um, and then posthumously uh, Wildside, which was originally released in 1995, which he uh, kind of washed his hands off because of um, interference from the studio, it was recut, and then it was uh, posthumously recut back to his original vision and released in 1999. Um, he killed himself, he took his own life, in 1996, so ultimately not long after the issues that had happened with Wildside. Um, so yeah, a, a kind of tragic end to a filmmaker who I genuinely think had a visual style and a way of telling stories which feel not unique but feel off-kilter enough to make it sound very much like he had his own unique voice. So, um, yeah, that's that's who we're talking about. That's the man. Let's talk about the man first. Um, what's really interesting is the fact that he took to genre as much as he did. Um, and in, in adapting the novel from 1983, Mrs. White, uh, which ultimately became White of the Eye, we find something which I find, um, as, a, as a viewer of cinema, something that is infinitely fascinating. And on paper, this movie ticks so many Duncan boxes, it's unbelievable. Not least to mention that it is, for all intents and purposes, although we can't use the, the term giallo because it's not Italian, it is a giallo. It's a, a murder mystery. Um, where we see point of view of a killer killing people whilst wearing essentially leather biker gloves while he's doing it. There is a, a death with an open blade razor. There are continual flashbacks to trauma in the past um, and flashback, flashbacks all the way through the movie. In all honesty, the movie has a very disjointed kind of linear narrative constantly looking back to events that happened at key points that set up the reveal of our killer but yeah for for the for the most part if you sit back and look at this one if you were not told what country of origin this movie came from you would instantly think uh, kind of on the levels of a, a maybe our gentle styled or influenced Jally movie and it, it certainly has all the feel of that 
running through it. I think where the movie kind of really rockets for me, like I say, with this review, I don't just necessarily want to review the movie. I've already done that. Jump back and listen to our one-year anniversary show. I think where the movie works for me in the realms of how I'm going to talk about it on this review is all the elements which instantly make it a movie that I think is kind of almost tantamount to the kind of flawed genius. Like, to me, this movie should be a lot more popular than it actually is, considering the rise of interest in kind of 70s, 80s, European, in particular, uh, Italian genre cinema, but also the, the kind of reverence that a lot of people have for the weirder aspects of 80s horror cinema. When people look at movies that are now more popular through releases from companies like Scream Factory or Vinegar Syndrome, Synapse, Arrow, are picking these movies that maybe didn't get the attention that they deserved at the time, putting them out in a new format. And certainly this is where I first found out about White of the Eye. Arrow Video put this one out back in 2013, I want to say, 2013. Um, and I, it took me a bit of time to pick it up, but I eventually did. I got the, the limited edition steelbook. Um, I know that I think it's Scream Factory or Shout Factory have put it out in the States. But even then, when the movie came out, very little fanfare. There wasn't many people reviewing this movie saying, how have I never seen this movie before? And it's strange because these labels, in particular a label like Arrow, who focus on, or who made their money in putting out Italian genre cinema, in particular Baba, Argento, Fulci, um, when you look at those back catalogues there, why of the eye is nestled comfortably in there? Yeah, it's a bit more leaning towards the art house, but... It certainly fits. I think it, it, it works very well um, within there. Chances are, if you like movies like Tenebrae, you like movies like Deep Red, you will like White of the Eye. It, it, it occupies a similar grounding. Um, if we look at things like cinematography, it's, I mean, it's mostly shot during the day, which kind of different than a lot of Jally, where the killer would strike at night. This is mostly shot during the day, but there's a prominence to the colour. The colour scheme is very artistic, very 80s, very fresh, very vibrant. Um, there's a wonderful kill towards the beginning of the movie, which happens ostensibly in a, a kitchen environment, in one of these very lavish kind of postmodern 80s kitchens, uh, with all these white kind of formica-topped um, kitchen units and tables. And the, the vibrance of the exaggerated colours of red, so once again, think Argento, think Hammer, um, spilling over these counters, the, 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 the kind of setup of that whole kill is something right out of Tenebrae. You could watch Tenebrae and jump right into it. In fact, I would actually think Tenebrae and White and I would make a bitchin' double bill if you just wanted kind of surrealism and murder on your screen, go for that double bill. You will not be disappointed. It works so incredibly well. And all the kill sequences are kind of set up with this very artistic angle, which I think, you know, when you're watching it, you just kind of get drawn into 
to who is the killer and the movie doesn't really it's not one of these ones where in a movie like Tenebrae which I'm going to keep referencing because it really is kind of on that level um, for me in a lot of respects when you sit and watch Tenebrae there is the who is the killer right to the very end and then the reveal although you've probably pieced it together by that point the reveal is like ah, not in this movie um, I think uh, David Keith's character very early on exudes that he is the killer so when you're you're watching his character Paul White um, you very quickly start to realise there's something not quite right about him and he's pretty much revealed as a killer well in advance of the, the kind of end showdown uh, with him and Kathy Moriarty who plays his wife Joan in the movie so we have these series of killings anyway and this investigation by the police to try and work out who is doing it which leads them to this this uh, this guy uh, played by David Keith Paul White is his name um, who is this kind of local handyman artist hi-fi sound expert system uh, who cases people's houses out while he goes and installs their like massive speakers which is weird because we're kind of heading back to the world of massive speakers now in 2018 everyone wants these massive sound bars and subwoofers and all the rest but back in the day before things like Sonos you actually had to wire up an entire fucking sound system uh, which seems a bit cumbersome but this is what this guy does he's a he's very hands-on man builds these bespoke hi-fi systems for people uh, who live in very wealthy households they're beautiful to look at but it gives them an opportunity to kind of case out certain people and pick his um pick his victims well so to speak single ladies uh, whose husbands may be away somewhere are you know prime fodder for for paul white's character um i love the small attention to detail here is he has this particular talent uh, which makes him able to know exactly where best placed from just kind of whistling um, and making noises himself uh, without having a machine to detect where the, the speaker should go. He can do that himself. Uh, he's meticulous. His attention to detail is phenomenal. And as a result of that, um, you know, it makes him a kind of perfectionist in the, in the killing variety as well. He's he approaches his murders with the same sort of meticulous nature that it would a hi-fi installation. He's married to uh, his wife Joan. Um, they have been together for, I think it's about 10 years, I think, what, what the movie kind of puts out there. He steals her, essentially, away from one of his friends, this guy called Mike. Um and you know manages to, to to steal her away using his charm maybe it's funny when you meet him at first he kind of has this weird mullet and almost kind of looks like there's a penchant for like native american kind of style or culture he kind of wears that this 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 is the look that he has um but certainly he manages to steal her away and they have a small kid together but the way he steals her um, through flashbacks is actually quite disturbing in that they go away uh, for a little trip up in the uh, up in the hills and he mutilates an animal in front of Mike as a kind of an intimidation or intimidatory 
sort of stance and it totally works and when we meet Mike years on you find that Mike this affected him it changed the way he went uh, the, the decisions he made in his life have, have totally changed and he's a kind of broken man because of it and this is in some level because Paul not only wormed his way into our lives but kind of ruined the best thing in his life and leaves this guy a kind of broken man kind of love these subplots the, the kind of backstories in the movie the way it flashes back work really well they kind of set things up in a particular way where the longer we spend through flashbacks with David Keith's character the more we start to realise how fucked up this guy actually is I mean, Joan, even through conversations with the police, insinuates that maybe there's something going on with her husband. You know, maybe he could be involved with it. Possibly. Um, the way he kills people is, is pretty gruesome. It's very bloody. But that's just the start of how fucked up Paul is as a character. Because, like, all the best serial killers... He likes to take trophies, but it's not even that he's just taking trophies. He's taking bodies, um, preserved body parts in particular, taking pieces from these bodies, wrapping them in plastic, and um, hiding them in a crawl space in the house. Now, I'm not entirely sure the chronology of when John Wayne Gacy was <laughs> uh, the serial killer, great famous American serial killer, was... Um, was caught, but this idea of hiding pieces of bodies in crawl spaces is very John Wayne Gacy, and that's kind of the the shock reveal in this movie when um, Joan finally finds this and realises that the man she's married to isn't just, you know, potentially insane, but is full blown insane all all the way right through. Um, the the kind of visual aspect to the movie is aided greatly by the soundtrack for this movie which is phenomenal I mean you have this movie has on some level this kind of triple threat attack which makes it amazing to me one the direction is bold the cinematography is phenomenal but the movie is edited by the great Terence Rawlings Terry Rawlings um, who has for many years been nominated for you know BAFTA's Academy Awards his back catalogue of movies he's worked on is nothing short of absolutely phenomenal with things like Blade Runner uh, Alien oh Jesus Alien 3 which maybe not so much he probably wasn't rushing with that one um, but you know movies like Legend FX so you know this guy has had a phenomenal you know, career working not only as sound editor but film editor as well. Now you couple that with specifically the story that I mentioned before, this idea of the 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 Jallo-esque kind of premise of the murder mystery but through the POV, the killer, the gloves, the, the killing sequences being shot in the way they are, puts it into that realm of an Argento or a Martino or a Fulci. The last aspect of that triple threat is the soundtrack, which is uh, created by um, Pink Floyd's Nick Mason, <laughs> who works on it, uh, as well as um, Rick Fren, uh, who uh, worked with 10CC, uh, Mike Oldfield, you know, he's, he's had a great career as well. But uh, Nick Mason jumps on and does the, the White of the Eyes soundtrack here with Rick Fren, and it is... 
weirdly it's got this kind of prog rock feel to it it's got this huge kind of sprawling sound which when coupled with the cinematography these wide open kind of uh, desert isolated spaces of shot in the movie they kind of work hand in hand they really build this this they build layers as i think is what i'm trying to say um and i love it because of that so you have that aspect so you're really being spoiled by not just a really interesting kind of weird story but the way the story is told as well without this linear narrative this kind of jumping backwards and forwards where you're watching things that may you're disoriented for a second to work out wait was right they're younger here so this is a flashback oh, right now we're back in modern times um you couple that along with like i see some very cool practical effects the killings are pretty violent in this movie um, I think like Don Camel in a lot of respects really kind of threw himself towards if he was going to do this movie if he was going to try and capture the the kind of psychosis then yeah we need to we need to do this we need to kind of push this idea of 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 violence hyper violence on the screen but it's never as grossly over the top as something like an Argento even though it exists in the same world. If that makes sense, if I can verbalise that in a way where it makes sense, that's kind of where that occupies, is this kind of idea of this sexual lust killing without maybe the the leeriness of an Argento, which I love in cinema, quite leery that way myself, but um, the, the movie itself, The White of the Eye, doesn't kind of push itself too far into that while still giving you this um, this idea of this really deranged individual who gets off on on the torture and murder of his victims. I mean, you can go one step further in the comparison between Tenebrae and Argento, etc. There is, even in, in the first killing in this movie, there is a slow motion uh, shot of a woman's head shattering against the back of a glass panel for a microwave and I mean if that isn't you know if that isn't like a nod and a wink uh, or even a, a, a slight acknowledgement of the visual stylings of uh, you know the importance of someone like an Argento I don't know what is um, that being said I don't know too much about Donald Kamel's influences leading up to this movie so there could be a coincidence maybe but it does feel quite rich um, if it's not a coincidence you know um, if we're, we're in this uh, position where you know it's, it's one of these ones where we're stretching it to say well maybe he wasn't a fan of the movies of the time he he's hitting a lot of the same beats that Argento would hit and his, uh, his, his movie here, which is, like I said, covering similar ground. By the time we culminate the movie to its kind of natural conclusion, a lot of the kind of poster shots for what White of the Eye would be associated with, uh, specifically if you look at any of the releases that have come out, the cover art tends to focus more on how Paul White's character looks at the end when he finally goes off his rocker so to speak um, and decides that he's going to start hunting his wife for sport uh, very much like he hunted the deer earlier on this kind of bookending of their relationship the their relationship being forged from this you know hunting of a deer to him ultimately hunting her um, when we jump to this aspect here 
he wears this kind of almost... It's like a cross between Native American face paint and almost kind of like a, how a samurai would use war paint underneath their mask. Uh, everything under his nose, leading down his neck, painted a vibrant red with these symbols painted on the temples. Um, and he looks fucking weird and at the same time pretty horrific and or scary as balls. And a lot of the, the shots that we see, a lot of the, the one-shot images, if you were to do like searches and Googles and that, will we'll face more towards that. I don't necessarily think that's a fair indication of what the movie's about. Yes, the movie ends in a way which feels very familiar to genre fans. You will you will be watching it going, right, well, I didn't realise we were going to end up here when I started the movie. All these movies kind of go down a similar road towards the end. It's the, it's the journey up into that that I think are are the bits that really stand out to me. The bits that kind of wow me, the bits that make me appreciate the movie maybe more than I should. And it's this idea of this kind of woozy, almost acid-like um, understanding of this deeply flawed character, this guy who, there's something just not quite right there, there's something just slightly off, and as a result, it and makes him do things that are horrible. You know, when you find out a bit more about his backstory, it's the classic setup for the the psycho killer. But I I kind of love it. I think it's I think it's great. And those flashback sequences as well, which kind of cover the relationships. You know, like Joan on some level always kind of knows there's something kind of off about this guy. Uh, but they, she just works through it because not everyone's perfect. Where they live is very remote and. You know, they just get on with life and do what they need to do and she's looking after her kid and everything's going to be fine. Even though there's a, a premonition or a sixth sense, so to speak, that Paul is not all there. There's not, he's not all quite collected. And I love how the movie sets that up. Um, and I love the fact that the movie doesn't shy away from the killings. We get to follow him. So we get not a, a huge amount of death in the movie, but when we do get death sequences, you are right at the kind of right at ground level. Shades of the Palma, shades of you know like Argento are all in here. Whilst we're getting that, but then we have to live with this weird family dynamic. And it's worth saying as well that when you sit and you watch the movie, the acting is not the strongest part of it at all. In fact, on some levels, I think that the acting in certain aspects kind of lets the movie down um, I mean I, I for for all intense purposes I think Kathy Moriarty's Joan is the, the, the best in the movie by far uh, David Keith's good, he's not amazing he kind of has Jack Nicholson and the Shining Syndrome in this movie and that from the first moment we meet him we don't think he's this like uber charming guy if anything I think there's something kind of fucked up and slightly off about him um, so you know you, you end up kind of in this position where he's not the greatest killer in a movie that you're watching he, he's acting as so-so it's not brilliant uh, we get a lovely appearance by Art Evans who plays one of the cops here kind of cracking down um on, on the the investigation trying to find out his. Art Evans, obviously, we recently covered him in Fright Night, but, you know, you will have seen him in, uh, in other movies as well, probably most known for his performance in um, Die Hard 2. Uh, he's one of the, the, the guys working in the tower uh, in Die Hard 2. 
Bow Thought were not actually treated to much in the way of great performances, and the movie doesn't actually need it. Uh, once again, and I, I keep making the, the comparisons to an Argento here, but the movie isn't really resting on the laurels of powerful acting performances, although, like I said, Kathy Moriarty is brilliant in this movie, and David Keith kind of is over the top enough to make it work. It's all the other aspects about the movie that really elevate this for me and make it one of these discussion points for an irreverence. Um, it's artistic. It's got a great soundtrack. It's got a wonderful setup. It feels like a jalo. This, you know, the, the, the great thing about interviewing Troy Holworth last year uh, to talk about his work on um, the So Deadly, So Perverse Jallo books that he's doing was the fact that he mentioned that he's got a third volume coming out hopefully this year and the fact that this third volume would be looking not only at the Jallos that came kind of much later but the ones that are we should consider Jallies but are not from Italian origin and I mentioned that at the time I said that hopefully White of the Eyes in there and he's like of course and it's the understanding that when you watch it that's what it feels like and knowing what my tastes are like um, this movie hits that sweet spot for me. Like I say, I don't necessarily think when I sit and talk about a session nine, I'm almost guaranteed to get a response one way or the other. I'm going to get a lot of people telling me it's a great movie. I'm going to get other people telling me they didn't like it. When I talk about something like Blue Velvet, you've got that lynch factor that's kind of tied in with it. So you're either going to love that movie because it's David Lynch or you're going to hate that movie because it's David Lynch. When I speak about White the Eye, I just don't know how many people have seen it. It's a, a movie that is never brought up in conversation, it's never brought up in boards. You've, you find very few people ever talking about it, and it's one to me that is worthy of debate. It's one that's worthy of sitting down and discussing and scrutinising, picking out the individual elements, the building blocks of the movie, which elevate it beyond that just kind of stock and slash genre fair of the 1980s. It, it harks back to a style of filmmaking which was already kind of dead by 87. When you think about Tenebrae's 82, uh, Argento's stumbling by this point, he's put out a Phenomena um, in 85 or 86, which is a kind of more supernatural jelly. Opera will come afterwards in about the same time frame, but even opera is moving back to a more classical jello style. Um, and the genre itself is dying out, and here's this Scotsman living in America, uh, making very few movies, but, uh, you know, as a true artist who takes a swing at making a thriller based on a book which isn't a great book. Mrs. White takes a long time to get to the point of, oh right, she's the realisation that her husband's a killer, uh, that the killings are this backdrop um, that are going on in the movie. And the movie is, uh, in the book, sorry, but the movie itself is more focused on these killings from the upfront, and then we follow the, the, the life of this, this married couple with their child. I think there's a whole hell of a lot to love about what the eye. I think it is a wonderful movie that is not a five star movie. I think maybe if I was to grade it, I'd give it a four at a push, a four and a half at a five. But when it comes to talking about movies that shape my love of 
cinema, checking out White of the Eye for the first time four years ago, maybe five years ago, at this point here, opened my mind to this idea that there was a whole genre of 80s kind of thriller slash horror slash jally movies out there that were not all coming from the greats, the big maestros of Italy. They were coming from other directors who were taking their stab at it. The, the idea of, I mean, De Palma. You look at De Palma movies, there's no way that De Palma's body of work in the late 70s, early 80s are not influenced by what Italian genre filmmakers were doing. And Donald Camell puts this movie out and it just doesn't get the credit that I think it deserves. I think it is a weirdly wonderful movie worthy of discussion. But, like with all irreverences, the last line doesn't really lie with me. Yeah, it makes my list because it shapes my love of genre cinema, but it's really you guys out there that I want to hear back from. This, to me, would have been a great choice for a movie club because it would promote people to go and check it out. But I get a feeling that if I put it out under movie club rules, a lot of people would have come back and told me to fuck off uh, or people would not have taken the time to watch the movie. Uh, that doesn't mean we still can't have the discussion on the podcast under the stairs, so I put it to you. Uh, this movie had a profound effect on me. I don't think it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the style in which it is made and the genre of cinema in which it lies is definitely close and very near and dear to my heart. But have you seen White of the Eye? Do you intend on seeing White of the Eye after my discussion points? Are there certain keywords like Argento and Jally that have put you off? Never going to check this fucking movie out. Or are you now more intrigued to check it out? Have you seen it before? Did you like it? Um, if you've seen it a while ago, you're going to watch it again and then come back and let me know. Let me know on the Facebook group page. I'm really curious to think... My understanding is that I imagine a lot of people haven't seen this. I could be wrong. I've been wrong in the past. But if you have or if you're going to let me know, and when you do, please let me know what you think as well on the Facebook group page, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash cast, or send me an email to podcastunderthestairs at gmail.com Right, we're going to take our final break of this show. When I come back, I'm going to be closing it out right after this. You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. And you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. This has been In Reverence episode number four, looking at the 1987 Donald Camel movie, White of the Eye. It's available through Arrow Video in the UK and I believe Scream Factory. What's he Shout Factory, Scream Factory, one of the two over in the States. Don't know if it can be streamed somewhere. If it can, check it out and let me know what you thought. Um, my case in this one was not to review the movie, but rather to let you know why this movie is kind of important to me. Um, I also think, I never said it in my review, but it holds a special place in my heart because Podcast Under the Stairs had not long started when I got this movie. And it was one of these ones where I was like, I'm going to do with my podcast as much movie reviews as possible. I'm going to take myself out of the comfort zone and just review movies that I know and love. I'm going to try and experience other movies out there. And it was a gamble for me. I didn't like the look of it and I didn't think the trailer was all that great and I watched it and fucking loved it. So, yeah. 
It kind of holds an, a, a place special and close to my heart. But, like I say, I'd be interested to find out what you guys make of it. Now, like I said at the start of this episode, this is a two-episode week. Coming up on Thursday is the audio commentary and the audio-video commentary with myself and the Baz looking at 2008's The Cottage. That is also the movie that we have for Movie Club this month, so hopefully you check it out, get your submissions in. I'm looking forward to it. The first review has already come in. Well done, George Coop, for striking first blood on that. George had a really good idea. He actually reviewed it as part of his letterbox and then liked me to his letterbox. So you can do that as well if you're a letterbox reviewer, because um, letterbox works on a similar scale. It's five stars, so as the maximum, so you can do that as well. Ping me over your review and I can capture it as part of what we're doing over here. So yeah, that'll be dropping Thursday and then the following Monday, we're kicking off the Russian Roulette retrospective looking at Final Destination with part one, covering movies one through three. So yeah, tons of stuff coming up on the podcast under the stairs. As always, there's a multitude of ways to check us out. We always promote Apple Podcasts as the primary resource. You can subscribe to us over there. Um, and that way you get the episodes as and when they drop access to the entire back catalogue of Teapot's programming leave us a rating and a review the ratings, super important, 5 stars for example the more of them we get, higher up the iTunes charts are pushed for people to check us out um, reviews, also let people know why you listen to the show check us out on Stitcher, Smart Radio, SoundCloud, Google Play and TuneIn come across to Facebook, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Cash. join our bitching group over there interact with the Baz on the twin prongs of social media sexiness, Instagram and Twitter, but can be followed at Cast. visit our website tputzcast.com right, I'm going to jump out here thank you for joining In Reverence my little vanity project within the podcast under the stairs In Reverence will be back in a couple of months time once again turning our attention to a more modern horror movie and then the next couple after that we're delving way back in the way 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 back machine going back to some of those oldies but goldies uh, and I can't wait to do them all and I can't wait for you to listen to them all and interact with me on the Facebook group page it's going to be a ton of fun but until then wherever you are whatever the time zone is and whatever you're up to in this big bad world of ours out there please take care of yourselves this is Duncan McLeish broadcasting live from under the stairs and I'm signing off on fire Don't touch me I'm a real live wire